Well, please open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to really encourage you. One of the things that we pray, we gather as elders before the service and pray for our time together. And one of the things that we often pray is just for our ability to receive from God in this setting. This is a unique setting. God designed it that way. It's not unique because any of us are in particular speaking in this setting. It's unique because the Spirit of God is among us uniquely in the preaching of his word and in our gathering to worship him. So we pray that, that we're receptive and, and, and you know, we give out notes for you to take with you to take some notes as to what God's particularly speaking to you about. But when we read the scriptures, I know this because I, I sit in church services and I've done that for years. You can check out when you read the Bible. And so we're reading the word of God and we're kind of like, yeah, well, we've read that before. Yeah, we've heard that before. But that that negates the the right now, right here presence of God among us. That he wants to take a familiar passage and make it come alive to us. So I want you to see the word. We put it up on screens. But if you have a Bible, turn to these passages and read them. And read every word like each word means something. And God's trying to communicate something to us. Now, one of the reasons I believe the Lord wanted us to study, and if you're kind of new to the church, where we we study through books of the Bible, uh, we let the Bible take us into the topics it wants to talk about. One of the reasons that we do that is because we just don't want to talk about whatever the guy in the pulpit decides, hey, I think I like this topic. Hey, I think I'll talk about this this week. Hey, that's trendy and cool. Uh, The Bible has spoken about all kinds of things that it creates value by speaking about some things and quite honestly ignoring some others. And, you know, I, I'm not smart enough and I don't know if anybody's smart enough to figure out what's the most valuable things to talk about. But the Bible is. And so God has inspired his word to take us into conversations and revelation from him. And so we come to this book of 1 Corinthians. There's 66 books in the Bible. We could, we could be speaking from any of them. But I believe right now is a critical time that God wanted us to to see some things that are in this particular book. And one of the things that's in this book is a highlighting of the supernatural Holy Spirit ministry that God gives to his people. And and I I want to highlight that because one, the, the book we're studying highlights it. But also because of the age in which we live is ever-increasing, becoming more and more of a natural-minded state of existence for us. It doesn't point us outside of us for something spiritual. It points us inside of us. It points us to common ideas. It points us to the strength of humanity. But the Bible is wanting to point us to something spiritual. Listen to these thoughts. Dallas Willard says, The idea that knowledge, and of course reality is limited to the world of the natural sciences, is the single most destructive idea on the stage of life today. J.P. Moreland in his recent book says, the Western world has turned increasingly secular. How many guys would just agree with that? Just just more and more secularity in our thinking. Because scientism, or, or where science and the natural sciences create our explanation for life and existence... Scientism is in the air we breathe. We consider it both normal and essential. 
Very few people are aware of what it does to a culture and to the church. It puts Christian claims outside of the plausibility structure. Right? What God says about life and the way we do life begins to sound unnecessary. Not the first thing that we go to. Strange even. That stuff's weird. And that's how we're being prepared to view life in our existence. And then we come to the Bible. And the Bible says some stuff that's falling out of those categories today. The Bible says you and I are called to live our lives by faith. The righteous walk and live by faith. Have you, have you thought about how ridiculous that can sound? You, you are living your life based on things you cannot see a God that you cannot touch you're putting your life into those categories and you're going to live your life as a reflection of dependent upon leaning on things that smart people today are going to tell you are superstitions And they're not real. That's what uneducated people, that's what people who lacked insight and intelligence, that's what they believed one day. And yet you and I are basing our lives on those things. The most important things about our lives, get this, are invisible. You can't taste them, you can't touch them. Your five senses don't put you near to them. But they are the most important things about our lives. And just contemplative statement here in your outline. There is an aspect of our existence that is, that is above and, and beyond. There is an influence in our lives that is not from earth and it's not human. There are natural forces and there are spiritual forces. You are a creature who is connected to the natural realm and to the immaterial realm. Life is not merely natural. It's also supernatural. Life is not merely right here, right now, and temporary. It is elsewhere and eternal. Right? I mean, that's huge. right? You and I are making plans. We're collecting stuff. We're preparing our lives. Are, are we just preparing for right here, right now, and temporary? Are we living our lives like there's an elsewhere? There's another address. There's another existence you and I are going to take up. And there's an eternity that informs our lives. There's not just today, next week, or the foreseeable future, or 84.2 years, whatever. There's an eternity that I live my life in light of. Hearing, seeing, the Bible speaks about That is not merely a function of ears and eyes. It is also a function of revelation. This mysterious thing God does that causes things to come to us that that just suddenly makes sense. Suddenly connect to us in a way that awakens us and draws us in further to them. That's not the function of your eyes or your ears as we're going to see in this passage today. In the reality, our lives are... Most deeply meaningful because of things that are on the mysterious end of our existence. The things that matter the most to us are mysterious. N.T. Wright says this. He says, life is full of mystery. 
the deepest, richest, and most complex theories that science could ever come up with will only serve to highlight the fact that there is still a depth of mystery which goes way beyond it all. You can study biology and human genetics and know everything there is to know about fertilization, reproduction, pregnancy, birth, and childhood. But when you see your newborn child and two eyes meet yours with a look that seems to say not, who are you? But so it's you. You glimpse a mystery which no physical explanation can ever begin to explore. It's the same with music. The physicist can, in principle, explain what happens when a particular instrument is played. But why Mozart makes us want to laugh and cry and dance, why some music is deeply consoling and some deeply disturbing remains a mystery. Hey, can you imagine you know, next time you're, you're watching a movie? Imagine that movie without music. You know, there's some scenes you just wouldn't know what to do with. You know, is this a funny scene, an intense scene, a scary scene? The music tells you how to feel about it, right? So, you know, minor chords, you know, oh, well, this is going to be scary, whatever it is. Pull that stuff out. And, you know, we love doing life with music in the background right? because it does something. It touches our lives. There's a dimension to us that gets affected by that. He says the deepest mysteries of human life, love. Can somebody put love in a test tube, right? Just quantify it, test for it, do some scientific, you know, would chemistry find that? Would physics find love? Right? The things that we think so define our existence, but yet you extract love from your existence. You will instantly find yourself not really wanting to have an existence, Right? Death, joy, beauty, and the rest. These have for millennia been believed to point to the deepest mystery of them all, the mystery of God. People believed that by doing or going through particular initiation rites and disciplines, they would get to the heart of the mystery and would discover things that would change their lives completely. This realm of mystery has an ability to speak into our existence like nothing else can. And yet it is so foreign to us, so unexplored. And one of the things we're going to see as we read here in in this chapter today is, is Paul is going to introduce us to this realm of the spirit, to the activity of the Holy Spirit, to the fact that we are spiritual beings and not just natural beings. But remember what I I think I've said a couple of times. In defending this idea that we are spiritual beings and not just natural beings, remember Paul's audience is not a group of unbelievers who need to get this explained to them. This book is not written to the audience of those that Paul debated in the town square in Athens. These are believers needing to be told this. Do catch that. Do listen to this like, is that me too? That's why I ask you the question in the outline or in the title. Are you living a short-circuited life? Because Paul's going to make a case here for something glorious 
But the reason he's making it, and he's going to end this little section by saying, but there's some of you who seem to have short-circuited this. You guys know what a short-circuit is, right? Here's a, here's a definition for a short-circuit. A short-circuit is an unwanted or unintentional path that current can take, which bypasses the routes you actually want it to take. So if Paul were introducing electricity in chapter 2 here, he would explain that here's a, there's a source, it runs this path, and then it pops out over here and it produces this outcome. That's what he's saying about the Spirit. But for you Corinthians, it seems that you have been short-circuited. Rather than experiencing the outcome of the spirit over here, there's something that gets into your wiring and it starts here and it goes right here. Just like that. It just runs right here. This easier route. And rather than traveling and arriving and accomplishing and experiencing what the spirit was designed to do in our lives, you guys seem to be having a different experience. You, you, he's troubleshooting the circuitry of their lives. And he's saying there's this short circuit. And we're going to find out that that short circuit is, is the flesh. And you and I can live Christian lives where we short circuit the spirit. And we just do what comes easy for us. We do that which is natural to us. Rather than that which is spiritual. So he is speaking to an audience of believers. We would fit this description. And there's much here for us. So let's read this passage. Starting in. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I, when I came to you, brothers, I, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Right? Paul is not wanting to say, I don't use words, none of us use words. Remember, Paul's going to write 16 chapters here. He's going to write a second letter to these Corinthians. There's another letter that he wrote that we don't have. Paul was a man who used words. This is not an argument against teaching or using words. But he points to something greater than these words. He says, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, catch this, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God. No one except the Spirit of God. Yeah, there's so much here. I don't want to race through these verses. We'll get to some of this stuff next week. No one understands the thoughts of God. Can, can you just get your mind around that? 
I mean, how many of us are sitting in this room today going, well, wait, I, I understand some, I understand some things about God. I'm not claiming to know a lot, but I understand some things. Yes, you do. Where'd you get that? By the Spirit, right? These are just good things to pick up along the way, right? Verse 12. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not, what? Able. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, venture just for a second into chapter 3, because this sounds familiar, right? This is, this is what Paul's trying to address these things for this audience to hear. He says, but, but, I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, even though you are. I couldn't speak to you that way. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, there's this short circuit problem among you. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? And you remember, we started this whole section with that issue being the issue. I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. Right? That's where we started in chapter 1, verse 10. And he's coming back to that. So everything we've heard is trying to help us with this dysfunction that's crept into the church. Right, let's pray once more before we get into this word today. Father, these words, they are words, letters, and sounds. But they are life because of your spirit. Because we are not merely fleshly beings who read things and hear things with ears. Lord, we are spiritual beings who hear life in places because your spirit speaks to us. And that's what we gather for in the preaching of the word. That more than the words that we hear with our ears, there would be the voice of the spirit speaking and revealing to us as we listen. So Lord, we entrust this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go back here. We're just going to look at these first few verses in this chapter first. In chapter 2, there's, there's something going to happen here in the first five verses that, that basically is the Apostle Paul, he, he's going to do this. He's going to say, now listen carefully, not that, but this. He's going to do that a, a couple of times here, just in this one passage. He does it all over the place. The New Testament is filled with this concept. Not that. And he might even take some time to paint that picture. And then he'll say, not that, 
but this. Now, before I even read this, I need to, I, I need to break into some personalities here in the room and introduce some of us to ourselves. Are you one of those people that doesn't live life doing that? That you look out at life and ideas and convictions that people have and choices that they make. And and in, in your estimation, kind of, well, everything is beautiful in its own way. You know? Who am I to say anything about what you're doing and, and the way you believe? And, and so you bump into ideas that, that quite honestly, biblically should feel like fingernails on a chalkboard, but they aren't feeling that way to you. Can I just say some of that is a personality dimension? You're, you're, just, you're just probably all over your life, you're just an accommodating person. You're more than willing to overlook some of those things. You're not going to make a big deal over little things, etc., But I just want you to notice something. The Bible does that sometimes. The Bible clearly picks something up, puts it before you and goes, not that, but this. And, you know, some of us, that's how we live our lives. So I'm not really encouraging you to go crazy with this concept. Because you already are very clear about the not that's all around you. Everybody knows what you're against because you're a professional in this category. So you think the way to start a conversation with a stranger is to point out to them not that. That usually doesn't work real well, quite honestly. But there is a dimension that the Bible calls on you and I to recognize ideas that are out there that are not good. And there are other ones that reflect who God is. And that's what you get here, right? So you get the Apostle Paul, verse 1, he says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come a particular way. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. No, no, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I did not come sounding like what you have gotten used to hearing. I did not come with the ideas of the day. I did not come with pop psychology. I did not come with the common philosophies that are out there on the street. I don't sound like I'm from this school or that school. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I don't, I don't analyze life like the, the debater of the age and the scribe and the wise guy that you're used to. Amongst all the ideas that you are used to hearing featured when there's a debate and an argument. And and, and basically we debate and argue over stuff that we think might actually fix the dilemma that we're in as human beings, right? Everybody wants to live a better life. Everybody wants to find some kind of happiness. And there's all kinds of thoughts out there that what will fix the universe. Paul says, I did not come with those ideas. I came with one. Jesus Christ and him crucified. D.A. Carson points out something that's, that's pretty important for us in the church age to, to notice this element. He says, so many Christians today identify themselves with some, some single issue other than the cross, other than the gospel. It's not that they deny the gospel. If pressed, they will emphatically endorse it. Until When you make it clear to somebody what... Let me say it this way. What you ought to be thinking? Oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, of course. It's everything that led up to you having to tell them that that's the concern. 
But their point of self-identification, the focus of their minds and hearts, what occupies their interest and energy, that's a good, that's a good little phrase right there. What occupies your energy, not technically what you believe, but what occupies your energy is something else, a style of worship, the abortion issue, homeschooling, the gift of prophecy, pop sociology, a certain brand of counseling or whatever. Now listen, he says, I have heard a Mennonite leader assess his own movement in this way. One generation of Mennonites cherished the gospel and believed that entailment of the gospel lay in certain social and political commitments. So cherishing of the gospel, but you know, we, we should be having an impact in, in certain social and political dimensions. The next generation assumed the gospel and emphasized the social and political commitment. The present generation identifies itself with the social and political commitments while the gospel is variously confessed or disowned. It no longer lives at the heart of the belief system of some who called themselves Mennonites. And listen, this is common throughout mainstream Christianity all over the world. If if John Wesley were in his grave, he would roll over daily with what is being believed in Methodism today. But it's not just Methodism. It's almost, almost every mainstream denomination has attached itself to something else beside the cross and ends up with ideas that reflect current values, current trends, current morality, and they begin to be defined by that. But if you pressed them on it, wax well, I'm saying if you pressed some of them on it, you would get, oh, well, yeah, I believe. Of course we believe. And they even have a statement of faith that sounds like it's pretty intact, but it's not where they spend their energy. It's not where their emphasis really is. Right, some of you guys can remember, maybe you went to, I, mean, I know folks who went to like Catholic universities being taught by professors at a Catholic university who treated stories and realities in the Bible like they were fables. Like, you don't actually believe that. Like, these were just moralistic principles that, you know, don't even believe in the person of Jesus Christ as described here. But they're part of a religious group. They're part of convictions about morality. See, the shift subtly happened over generations. So, and, then, and you may not feel this burden, but I, and I know I get underneath some people's skin sometimes and some things that get said from the pulpit, but I'm fully aware there's a generation coming after me that's going to pick up whatever we're saying or not saying and is going to run with it. And so if, if we don't keep clear the gospel and the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ as that which fixes humanity... Because I know, every, you know, there's lots of folks who adopt a cause and they find something that means a lot to them and they want the pulpit to talk about that. I, I get that. And some of those things are good things. And some of those things we probably should mention from time to time. And I hope we do. But Paul says, hey, I'm showing up among you and I'm not going to talk about the things that are popular out there that, that you've gotten used to hearing. I got one thing to point us to. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing fixes humanity 
except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's where he put his emphasis. But please be aware that's, that's not always the case. Carson goes on. He says, we must come back to the cross and to God's plan of redemption that centers on the cross and make that the point of our self-identification. We must consciously resist all blandishments from movements and philosophies and value systems that tolerate the cross or even nominally promote it, but in reality, displace it. We must recognize that what it means to be wise What it means to be spiritual is to embrace, by the help of God's spirit, the message of the crucified Messiah. This is no small issue. Again, think emphasis and energy. I got saved as a teenager. I grew up here in New Orleans with a family that was Catholic, so I had extended family members. Religion was part of the landscape of our lives. I had relatives who would speak at some level, not a lot, but at some level they would speak about some of these things. So I can remember relatives who had an extreme devotion to Mary. What they had been taught, what had been emphasized, where their passion was, they would bring up issues about Mary. That, that, That was a feature point. But when I began to read the scriptures... I did not find that emphasis on Mary in the scriptures. I can remember having a conversation. Again, this is, this is you know, Paul, Paul took issue, remember? Paul took issues. Where is the scribe? Remember when he said that? The scribe was the religious guy, the, the, the guy representing Judaism. Paul took issue with Judaism. The foundational biggest part of the Bible Dimension that he could have spoken about. How many know Paul was not real popular when he took some shots at the scribes and the Jews of his day? All right, so I'm saying that because I'm a Catholic. I grew up Catholic here in the city, but I know that I'm, I'm kind of venturing into a taboo topic for some because you, you you talk about my peeps now. You're, you're messing with my heritage. Uh, but the Bible does that because it wants us to analyze what do we believe about things and why do we believe it. So I remember having a conversation with an older lady who was attending an Alpha a number of years ago. And her emphasis, her energy kept going back to the activity of receiving communion. Receiving communion. And I got that because growing up, I knew the week was running out. My opportunities to receive communion were running out. I better find a service and get, get in that service and receive communion. Because that was critically important. So as I listened to her talk about some of those things, I I thought, you know, the the Bible does... I mean, Ronald did a great job today presenting what communion is to us. We're supposed to celebrate communion. But the Bible didn't sound that way. If the Bible puts its emphasis anywhere on receiving something, it's receiving the Holy Spirit. Not on receiving communion. And what happens is when you, when you shift your emphasis and your energy into receiving communion, you know when it gets neglected? The Bible's emphasis on receiving the Holy Spirit and his work. So the presence of God in the Bible is brought to us by the Holy Spirit, not by receiving communion 
And the volume of scripture that would say receiving the Holy Spirit, if I put that on one side of a scale and receiving communion on the other, it would tilt enormously because that's what the scriptures are emphasizing. But, but we, we have this tendency to, to displace the cross with some of our beliefs in the way we approach it. This is not just a religious thing too. There are popular ideas out there today. I, I sideswipe them often because I, quite honestly, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to rescue us from this false gospel. This false good news that there's human potential in you. That if you'll just buckle down, read the right self-help book, and get around the right techniques, you can get a happy life. You can rescue your humanity. Can, can I tell you, you read all the books you want, you can, you can buckle down all you want, you can become the most determined human being who ever was. You cannot fix what's broken. Only the cross of Jesus Christ can fix what's broken because you know what's broken? is our alienation from God. That's what's broken. If you figure out a way to get happy without being restored to God, can I tell you, you haven't fixed yourself. Now you might smile a little more. You might be a little more positive, might make a few more sales. Some people might become friends of yours. But you're still broken. You're still apart from God. The cross reconciles us to God. And that I need more than anything. Now, some of us who've been reconciled to God need to put a smile on our faces. <laughs> right? And kind of look like we've been reconciled to God. So I don't want to be totally anti that concept. Paul, Paul pulls another one of these, not, not that, but this. When, when he contrasts, what, what persuades you? What is the persuasive influence that, that makes you turn the corner into being a spiritual being, into a relationship with Christ? He, he mentions here in, in verse 1, he says, I, I came to you, brothers. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, particularly, he's taking aim at this, with lofty speech or wisdom. And then in verse 4, he's going to come back to that. My speech and my message were not in plausible, reasonable, that makes sense, words of wisdom. Now, what's he taking a shot at here? Well, in the context of Corinth, a massively important, a common feature of cultural life were were people who were, were professional talkers. I mean, that's what they were. They were orators. They were arguers. They were, they were part entertainer. They were part debater. They were very skilled. They were intellectual. And you, know, and you know what's really similar to what they had then is what you and I have on talk radio, news programs. Guys who can argue. right? Guys who can pull up one idea, say how stupid that is, and get you to go, yeah, yeah that's true. That is so stupid. I can't believe people actually believe that. And then they explain something and you're like, yeah, yeah, see? That's right. I mean, that's the right thing right there. Well, these guys were all over the place. But you didn't have any radio broadcasts. You, you had them popping up. These guys would populate amphitheaters. They were, the, they were the giant entertainers of the day. They were in town squares. They were often invited to dinner parties, right? Wealthy people who had, had great homes. As a matter of fact, the church probably met in some of these wealthy people's homes. That's where they were doing that in the first century. 
They were used to coming to a dinner party at a big home. You're gonna, this is all going to make sense to you as you read through 1 Corinthians. Remember, some of y'all, you arrive early, eat all the food, and you get drunk. Because that's what they did at a dinner party. You got there, and if you were the special people, you showed up at certain times, and the lower people showed up at a different time, and, and you took advantage of the hospitality, and you ate, and you drank. And then during the evening, an entertainer was going to come. And he was probably going to be one of these guys. He was, a, he was a great communicator. And he was going to convince you about something that was popular in that day. And Paul says, not that. That's not how I came to you. I didn't just pull out a bunch of words that you couldn't argue with and intellectually stimulate you and convince you to shift your position to mind. That's not what happened. For any of us to be reconciled to God as the gospel does, to make us new creations and to bring us into a relationship with God, a lot more than that's got to take place. Paul was not looking for dinner party decisions amongst these people. He was looking for the power of God to affect their lives. Now notice this. Because gospel transformation and coming into a relationship with God is much more than a war of words. And a lot of us can debate all kinds of ideas. I'm not against apologetics. Paul's going to do, do apologetics all over the place. But, but you, 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 don't, you don't create a new creation with your words. That person's problem is not just that they are intellectually on a different page than you. It's much worse than that. So if you can take all of their points of interest and shoot them down one after another and provide better data to them, that won't save them. Although you might should do that. But please be aware, that's not what saves them. Something more has got to happen. Interesting, when Paul, Paul's really unpacking the ministry of the Spirit here in chapter 2 in a way that all of Corinthians is going to give us some insights into the Holy Spirit's ministry in ways that are unique. This book really helps us. And, and previous to this, you don't have many writings from Paul before this. You've got Galatians, you've got First and Second Thessalonians, that, that, don't, that they all assume the ministry of the Spirit and mention the ministry of the Spirit, but they don't try to explain it very much. And he's going to do a lot more of that in Corinthians, which is very helpful. But he does say this in First Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 4. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. How do do I know you're saved? Not because you agree with my words. Paul says, we know, we know, because God's got to do some choosing here. God chose, and and there was this power in the Holy Spirit that came to you. It wasn't just that you subscribed to our words. Our gospel came to you not only in word. Now listen, it needs to come in word, but it cannot only come in word. For it to have its impact on our lives, it takes more than words. He says this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God 
chose you. That's a whole message, isn't it? Being thankful for people. Gather some people in your head right now. Gather the other set of people in your head right now. And be thankful for them. Why? Because they've given you personally a reason to be thankful for them? No, no, no. Be thankful for them because God chose them. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. You were set apart by the Spirit. Was it just that we had a better argument than somebody else? We brought lofty words and concepts to you that you couldn't win a debate against us? No, the Holy Spirit, God chose, the Holy Spirit set you apart. That's when you came to life. And so we know that God's power was among you. That's what they see. So you see the same thing, right? 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 kind of traffics in these ideas. There's the centrality of the cross, the person and work of Christ. There's the sovereign choosing of God that gets highlighted in chapter 1. And there's the power of the Holy Spirit. No one is a Christian today without those three things being involved. That's what Paul's highlighting here in 1 Corinthians. Now, he's going to say something here that's really powerful in verse 5. He says, when, when he came not in this plausible words of wisdom, but he came in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So here's a reality for every one of us. We live our lives by faith. So we're going to take this thing called faith and we're going to set it on something. Paul's questioning, are you going to set it on cool sounding ideas, on popular, trendy, lofty, cool, posted on Facebook ideas? That your life can actually finally be something. If you can just X, Y, or Z, feel this way, do this way, subscribe to this pattern. Are you going to set your faith there? Because Paul says we're going to do one or the other. We're going to set it somewhere. He says, well, how about we set it on the power of God at work? And so, so what exactly is that? What, what is this demonstration, he says, the demonstration of the spirit and of power and our faith is to rest in the power of God. Gordon Fee says, but, but what, to what powerful demonstration of the spirit does this refer? What's this about? It is possible, but, but not probable given the context of, of weakness that he just mentioned, that it reflects the signs and wonders of 2 Corinthians 12. I, I'd say, I think there's a case to be made and I'm going to make that case today in spite of what Gordon Fee said. Um, I, th- I think they're, they're maybe in this particular moment, this isn't the highlight moment, but the rest of Corinthians is very much about signs and wonders. More likely, it refers to their actual conversion, which I, I agree, and with its concomitant gift of the Spirit, which was probably evidenced by spiritual gifts, especially tongues. The evidence lies with the Corinthians themselves and their own experience of the Spirit. As they responded to the message of the gospel. I, you know, I've never met a Christian who loved God and I put this question to them. Would, would ever be anything but enthusiastic and excited. How many of us want, want more of the power of God? Amen. Just want to experience the power of God. Right? 
Now that can be said in ways that are, that are theologically sound, which I hope after today we're going to say it in a way that's theologically sound. And it can, be, it can be said in ways that are not theologically sound, but they're well-intended. So I want to highlight three things in this context that I, I think this context helps. Because Paul says, I, I want your faith to rest in the, the demonstration of the power of God. I want it, I want it to be there. Paul, really, what, what's there that you want us to set our faith in that place? Well, I'm going to highlight three things. I'm going to highlight conversion. Uh, I'm going to highlight the supernatural inbreaking of the power of God. And I'm going to highlight the life transformation of the person who gets saved by the Spirit. Right? So I, I see all three of these in this context. So I just want to highlight them. We'll move through them pretty quick. First, let me, let me, let me deal with the signs and wonders element first. The attestation to the gospel through signs and wonders. This is a demonstration of the supernatural breaking in to the natural realm. Right? In the Bible, this is not a small deal. Right? As a matter of fact, look at these verses here with me. Jesus' ministry, much, much. You ever ask this question? Jesus came to be our, the propitiation for our sins. Which means that he comes to die a death and to be resurrected by the power of God. That's, that's the ultimate reason why Jesus comes. Anybody ever wonder why it took him three years of public ministry and 33 years approximately of life to do that? Doesn't it seem like that could happen a lot faster? So what was going on? What's up with the three years of Jesus' public ministry, etc.? Now he's making disciples, he's teaching some things, clarifying some things, all those things super valuable. But you cannot deny this, and you'll see this in these passages right here. Jesus was demonstrating the power of God in the natural realm. There's a word that's tucked away in the New Testament. It's the Greek word exousia. It's a powerful word. And it's often used as power. It'll be translated power sometimes, but it actually means the right to exercise power. So it's not just power, it's the right to exercise that power. So when Jesus shows up and he does all these miracles, he is demonstrating, I am the creator, I have the right to exercise my power in this world. He can overcome gravity, he can make it rain, make it stop, he can do anything he wants. And he does that. And the New Testament Preachers present that reality. Acts 2, verse 22, one of the first messages that gets preached on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear this. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. There was a demonstration in the life of Jesus. That the supernatural realm had broken into this natural realm. And it, it caught people's attention, and rightly so, because it informed them that you are not just natural beings. There's a supernatural realm that governs this realm. And Jesus put that on display. When the gospel goes to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, you get the same explanation. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. This is how... The ministry of Jesus gets summed up in a quick statement. How God anointed Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit and power. And does that sound like what Paul just said? Right in chapter 4, chapter 2 verse 4. In demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 
So you Corinthians, I showed up demonstrating the spirit and power, which by the way is what Jesus did as well. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. How do you know God was with him? Because he did stuff that only God could do. Jesus is going to turn around to the New Testament believer in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and explain, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Hebrews chapter 2, which notice I've made this point before you probably can remember. Acts chapter 1, when Jesus says you will receive power, they already have words. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they can explain the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At that point, they've got the words of the gospel. Jesus says, but you wait here because you need more than words. You're going to need the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit for your ministry. Hebrews 2, verse 4 says, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So, what, what is this? Our faith shouldn't rest in plausible arguments, etc., but it should rest in the spirit and the power of God. What, what, what does this mean? Well, it, I, I think it does mean that there should be demonstrations of that spirit and that power that show up in the church. And they manifest through spiritual gifts. They manifest through supernatural moments when the natural is this way and God comes in and says, nope, it's that way now. And his power did that. And there's a moment where he intrudes into this natural realm and reminds us, it's not just here that matters. And it's not just your physical bodies and what you can taste and touch that matters. There's another power in this universe. And he brings that power. And and we should be pursuing that power as well. Second. Conversion. I'm going to say conversion is a demonstration of the spirit and power. As we've already said, there's a lot more taking place than just a war of words where I became convinced and I sign off on a new set of ideas. Right? Jesus has already, or Paul has already said this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 introduces this, this gospel by saying in verse 21, In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And then he goes on and explains that further in verse 27. He says, but God chose what's foolish. God chose. God chose this. God chose that. Verse 30. And because of him, by his doing, are you in Christ Jesus. So how does anybody get in to a relationship with God? It takes the power of God to convert us. We don't even know where to look. We don't even know that we should be looking. If you, and I, if you and I get a clue that there's a God that I need to somehow get right with, you don't have the ability to come up with that. It takes the power of God to do that. You want to see what natural mindedness looks like? Follow these passages with me. This is the natural man. John chapter 6, verse 41. One day, Jesus out doing ministry. People trying to figure out why Why is this stuff being said? Why does it not sound right? Verse 41 says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, wait, 
It's not this, this is Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. Right? That's a very natural explanation as to who this man is. Is it not? Right? They stare at Jesus, bring all of their faculties to bear. And in that moment, here's what they see. I know him. Dude grew up down the street from me. He's so-and-so, you know. Yeah, yeah, we used to play ball together. Wasn't much of a ball player, but uh, this is all they see. That's it. They, they don't bow down and worship. They don't recognize who he is. The natural man is fully seeing something right now. And that's who he looks like to them. And Jesus explains why that is. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Don't don't, don't freak out, guys. You're staring at me, you can't figure out who I am. Don't freak out. Unless the power of God acts on your life, you'll never know who I am. You'll stare at me and you'll never see who I really am. That's what he's saying. Here's a commentary thought on that from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul explains that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Right? Perishing can't see it. Cut off from seeing it. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, that's a problem right there. Read all the self-help books you want. Become the best, most ultimate, most educated, most determined person to be something that matters. And all you want, that still describes you. You can't see darkened in our understanding the bible says blind and we are not only in the dark but we are dark the bible says but then in verse 6 of that chapter paul says for god who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Can you explain, dear person, why you see what you see? Why are you here this morning staring at the cross and going, that, that reconciles me to God. That act fixes everything between me and the living God. Can you explain why you see that? I've already mocked this enough. It's not because you're smarter than somebody else on the planet. This is why you see, because the God who says, let there be light. Suddenly, click, turn the lights on. Can you turn your own lights on? No! But the God of the universe can come into your heart and go, click, lights come on, and all of a sudden you stare at the cross and it means to you what you never had it mean before. How did that happen? The surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. Remember, Jesus is going to say this sort of thing to a lot of people. 
He's going to highlight, you know, he's going to approach Nicodemus. And he's going to introduce Nicodemus to the idea of being born again. And, and you'll notice Jesus' explanation of being born again. He, he begins by telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless one is born again by the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here's a man coming to ask questions. Jesus is explaining, here's why you got all these questions, Nicodemus. Because until the Holy Spirit turns the light on, you can't see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Isn't that what Paul just said? He, we, we speak spiritual, secret, hidden things to those who are spiritual. And they get it. Listen, we, we talk about this stuff and, and I, I mentioned the cross and, and you, are, you instantly can be holding back tears because it means so much to you, right? But you can remember a day when it didn't mean a nickel's worth to you. Nothing changed about it. The Holy Spirit did something to us. And we have been born again. We have been given a new life. We have been made spiritual beings. See, salvation is much more than a war of words. Where we want to debate and we go, okay, I'm convinced. I intellectually figured it out right along with you. Thanks for the presentation. I'm with you. It's more than that. And, and the reason why Paul sounds the way he does at the end of this, he, and when he says, are... There's jealousy, there's strife among you, there's disloyalties, you're in the wrong place. You're acting like mere human beings. Paul, what do you want us to act like? What's the backdrop for what he's saying right there? He's saying that the Holy Spirit has come to you. You are spiritual beings. You have been born, you've been made alive by the Spirit. There's a new life in you. can't explain why you're acting like mere human beings because you're not mere human beings anymore. But I'm having to teach you like you are. Do you understand the short circuit that's happening here? Why Paul is highlighting this? Because something, when the spirit comes, he comes with power. Amazing power comes to us. This is not just a paper transaction in heaven. One day, you were minding your own business, a jerk among jerks, and in the, the courts of heaven, somebody signed over some paperwork and put you in a new file and put you in a new file cabinet, but you're still a jerk among jerks with a new file. By the way, that is the doctrine of justification. But that's not being born again. And what Paul's highlighting, he's introducing us to the ministry of the Spirit that forms a different kind of expectation. What is our life going to look like? Well, it's not going to look like jealousy and fear of each other and loyalties and I'm this one, I'm that one and boasting in our... It's not going to look like that. You short-circuited this thing. You let this thing run the course it's supposed to by the Spirit. Those issues wouldn't be those issues in your life anymore. That's what he's teaching us here. Let me close with one last dimension of this. The empowerment and transformation are demonstrations of the spirit and power. Gordon Fee says, for Paul, the emphasis, the emphasis lay on the spirit's power. Power to transform lives as here. To reveal God's secret wisdom. 
to minister in weakness and to affect holiness in the believing community. The purpose of the Spirit's coming was not to transport one above the present age, but to empower one to live within it. That's why the Spirit has come to us. Now, Paul says something here. Don't race past this. This is so informative. And I hope the Lord will minister this to some hearts this morning. In verse 3, against the backdrop of people who show up at your dinner parties, and they got it together and they stick their chest out and they show up with their show and they're so kind of confident amongst you and they've got the idea of all ideas and their books are the bestseller list and you should listen to them. Paul says, you know, not like those guys, when I showed up, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I was just flat afraid to be among you guys. He stayed for a year and a half. He continued to relate to them. He wrote multiple letters to them. He pastored and related. How did a guy who was in that kind of shape ever show up in the first place? Now, I find it interesting that he says, I was with you this way in demonstration of the Spirit and power. I think Paul's life was a demonstration of the Spirit and power. His, Paul's conversion, the calling that he lived out, the fact that nothing seemed to be able to stop this man from answering the call. Do you think that's because Paul was really cool? You'd have been impressed by this guy if you met him? Or was it because the power of God was at work in his life? Well, in 2 Corinthians, and he, and he says this, he, he makes a case for, this is what you see amongst you. 2 Corinthians 3. Verse 3 says, and you, you Corinthians, you you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. He says, your lives are demonstrations of God. Your your transformed lives, the fact that you're different people than you once were, are living letters. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves, that any of this stuff came from us. It came by the Spirit. You are different people by the Spirit. Paul was different among them by the Spirit. Right? He highlights this in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. He says, but, but we have this treasure of jar and jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Why? Because of the power of God at work. Paul went through circumstances that were weighty and crushing, but he wasn't crushed by them. Why? Because of the power of God. Paul faced opportunities. Eric, you can come back up. Paul faced opportunities. I'm going to go to Corinth and I'm going to minister. Something arises in me. That feels like weakness. I, 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 don't know if I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I should do this. Fear. 
Trembling. Really, Paul, you had to use three words to describe how you were feeling? Weakness and fear and trembling. And this is what he faces. So why go? Why does, why does anybody go when, when you put your feet right next to something you're about to step into and what goes off inside of you is, is weakness and you, your knees get... And all your mind goes busy on why you can't do this. And then fear begins to fill in after that. And now you've come up with all kinds of fearful thoughts and reasons why I, I can't do this. I, I thought this was God. I can't do this. Trembling comes next, right? It's, it's become enormous. But Paul says, I was among you anyway. I still did what God called me to do. What was that? It was a demonstration of the spirit and power. So I want to pray for us this morning. I think you can go with me here. When I hear people, usually hear older people do this, look out today's church world say where's the power of God and they might remember something from their past and bring up a thought hey, where, where's the power of God All right, can, I, can, I, can I just theologically tweak that a little bit I know, I know what most of us mean by that and I'm with you but can I just highlight something I just mentioned three categories that clearly are in this text about the power of God. When you stand and survey and you go, where's, where's the power of God? You do recognize you're only looking for one of them. You, you want to see the power of God? Turn to your left. Go ahead, turn to your left. Assuming that person is saved, turn to your right. Assuming that person is saved. See all these people here today? All these saved people? There were about a dozen people, approximately, who came to Christ in the Alpha Retreat over the weekend. Yeah. See, you, you can't sit in this room. You can't listen to me make that announcement and go, where's the power of God? How did those people see anything? How did any of us see anything? Why are any of us in this room with a passion for God that's turned our lives upside down? Why are there story after story after story in this room of people who used to be this and now you're this? Used to be controlled by this and now you're that. You used to be something else than you are right now. Do you know how that happened? It happened by the power of God. The demonstration of the Spirit of God among us. So, so listen, I get, I, I get... Corinthians is going to bring us into another category, the supernatural inbreaking of the Spirit with miracles and signs and wonders, and that is a demonstration of the power of God. Can, can you just go with me? That's one of three demonstrations of the power of God. So nothing will evaporate your faith in the power of God, which is where you're supposed to set that faith by looking around and saying, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see enough people speaking in tongues or prophesying. Uh, I can't remember the last time somebody got healed. God is not among us. God is not among us. Well, I don't know how to explain all these people in here today. Except the power of God. Now, do I want to see God among us more in that category? 
Absolutely. It's part of the reason we're studying 1 Corinthians together. But let our faith be affected by the power of God in these categories that we've experienced. Amen? Let's stand up together. Father, we do want to see your power among us more and more and more. Lord, it, it, it imparts hope, Lord. It, it raises our eyes to the places of mystery where our hope lies. In an invisible God, at work in hearts and minds, turning on lights, awakening souls. Lord, there are people in our lives who are unconverted, who we have had multiple arguments with. And maybe when our words seemed to fail, Lord, we have given up thinking. Lord, turn our eyes yet again to the power that comes when you turn the lights on. When you work by your power, when the Father sovereignly interrupts our stubborn, rebellious lives, and the Spirit comes, and we are born again by his power, and the light comes that shines into our darkness become aware that the surpassing power was from God, not from us. Lord, there are some here this morning who stand on the edge of something you've called them to and and, and, and they're feeling the weakness of their own condition and the fear of of taking another step and the trembling that comes from their imagination. Father, I want to pray for the power of God among us, for them, for for that group who's here. God God has called you to something and you are more aware of, of your inability to do it and the fear of you stepping out then you are aware of the power of God with you. And you are paralyzed by that. I mean, God wants to minister to you this morning. So I, I want you to be honest with God. I believe there's a number of folks who need this morning to have hands laid on you and prayer for you that awakens your awareness and awakens the power of God in you to give grace for you to take that step to take the step to do what seems impossible to do what seems to be so frightening but yet you would do it anyway in faith your faith would rest in the power of God so if there's been something in your life that that you are hesitating about 
following God in. I, I want to pray for you today. So could you, if that's you, could you just come forward? I believe the Lord wants to minister to you. He wants to break up this paralysis that may be in your life, this hesitation that's in your life. God has a step for you to take. So if that, if that bears witness with where you are, could you come up here and Come believing that God knew this was where to land for you this morning. This moment was going to introduce a new moment for you to move forward in faith. I had two impressions in in praying for this morning about this. One was for a person that God is perhaps calling you into something that's more public in nature. The the word stage fright is what came to mind. This this feels like stage fright for you. As God would increase you being in, in the public eye and there's something in you that just screams don't do that to me God. I don't want to do that God. I don't have an interest in doing that God. I can't do that, God. That's you, the Lord, I believe, wants to impart power to you this morning. And another impression I had was a, for a, a, a mom who is considering homeschooling, or maybe you've just stepped into homeschooling, and there's something in you that's saying, I can't do this. I can't do that. I, I just, I don't, I don't have this. I'm not going to be able to do this. And you're just wrestling in faith right now. And I believe God just wants to awaken in you an awareness that your dependency is not on you. It's not on your ability and what you're bringing. Your faith is to rest in the power of God. So he's going to want you to transfer your faith to God showing up with power in your life. So if that's you that bears witness with you, just come ask the Lord to meet you if you're not already up here. Just ask a few of you guys if you would come pray for these folks. The Holy Spirit is in us and he operates through us as we lay our hands on folks and pray for them and believe God. I'm going to pray for us as well. it is to become natural minded to depend upon human strength our own abilities the circumstances around us as though those are the things that give us success and move our lives forward into the places that mean something Lord you would not have our faith to rest in man's construction in man's strength in plausible wisdom human reasonings Lord, you would have our faith to rest in the power of God. Your spirit at work, accomplishing and doing things that we could never do 
with our own strength. And so, Lord, would you, this morning, would you awaken in us, Lord, the way in which you said light would shine out of darkness. The God who just speaks and lights come on, God, would you speak this morning? Would you flood our hearts with a sense of faith that's in your power? God, removing our our loyalties to our own abilities or somebody else or circumstances. God, this morning, we just put our faith in you. God, if you've called us to something, then then you're going to be faithful to bring it to pass. And your power is going to be all that we need. Supernatural invasion of your power into our lives. Lord, that's what we call for. That's what we need. That's what we're asking this morning. Lord, for all who are gathered, Lord, maybe for some who are still in their chairs, Lord, this morning, would you awaken our attention, putting our faith, resting our faith in the power of God. Well, that's our hope. That's what we're believing you for. That's what we're looking for this week, Lord. Listen, I'm going to let these guys pray. I'm going to let Eric just lead us. But I'm going to dismiss us. This is the end of the service. If you want to stay and just enjoy singing, do that. If, if you're headed out, you need to go understand. Um, if you'll let to come pray for any of these guys, that's, that's cool too. Let's do that. eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, I want